Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. He threw his head back and came crashing down on her. His serrated teeth tearing the skin like it was papel mache. Yes. They were different from the Aztec vampires. His kind had fangs. They had sharp teeth and strong neck muscles to pull and rend the skin. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The figure of the monster is a figure that always emerges in, in literature when things in society are... Bumpy. <laughs> in fiction, you are able to explore trauma in ways that are more effective sometimes. To shed light on certain overlooked things that are in front of our eyes, I think that is one of the things that literature can do. Especially literature like Mexican novels that turn drug traffickers into vampires and fill eerie cemeteries with the ghosts of empire, literally. path snaked around the coach house, and they followed it through the trees and the mist until they reached a pair of iron gates, decorated with the motif of a serpent eating its tail. All houses, all manors, all this, all, all this kind of things that you will find in a typical Gothic fiction from the 19th century in, in Europe, but they are being written in Mexico, in contemporary Mexico. So I thought, wow, this is something weird. <laughs> Why is this happening? Why, Why is this happening? Alejandra Soifer is an Argentinian writer based in Toronto. After five intense years of study, he's a newly graduated PhD scholar. Alejandra believes we're witnessing the birth of a new literary genre. The title of my thesis is A Mexican Gothic, Narco-Narratives, Necromarkets and Vampires with Machine Guns. And it's about horror fiction, crime fiction and gothic fiction in contemporary Mexico. Narco-narratives, necromarkets, and vampires with machine guns. Alejandro's work is the latest to be featured in our series Ideas from the Trenches, where producers Tom Howell and Nikola Lukšić showcase innovative PhD research from across the country. This is excellent weather for discussing zombies and all things spooky. Zombies love the rain. The rain and the mist and the clouds and the gray. Ooh. We first met Alejandro on a rainy gray morning 
the fog creeping in from a nearby lake and reaching its cold, moist fingers towards the entrance of his downtown apartment building. Hello. Hola, Alejandro. It's Nicola here. Okay, okay. I, I will open the door for you. Okay. Tradition has it that vampires cannot enter your home unless you invite them in. Alejandro didn't suspect us. So, um, this is where I work. But seconds later, we're sinking our teeth into his bookshelves. See all this um, Pulp Fiction style and all that. I, what are we looking at? This is my small collection of classical Gothic and some Stephen King. And then this is the first edition. And Alejandro's been drawn to Gothic and horror for as long as he can remember. All these writings that seem or try to conceive the idea that they are like real stories from true accounts of history. Like if you read Frankenstein, it's written in a, in a way that's all composed of letters and diaries and the same for Dracula and the same for the Castle of Toronto. The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. Horace Walpole published The Castle of Otranto in 1764. He subtitled it A Gothic Story. The helmet! The helmet! Walpole pretended he hadn't written it. Instead, he claimed he'd found the text, that it was an old manuscript from the Middle Ages written in a strange Italian dialect kept in a library by Catholic nuns. The Castle of Otranto in the introduction says, well, I found these papers in a convent and I am bringing to you the public to, to say whatever you want. And I noticed that uh, most of these uh, Gothic, uh, Mexican Gothic narratives, they also try to present themselves as if they are true accounts of things that are happening. So this is like a trend that's uh, happening right now. Horror fiction wasn't a big thing in Latin America for a long time. And in the last 20 years, it has been like popping up. And there are examples in Argentina. There are examples in Ecuador, Bolivia. Well, of course, Mexico. <laughs> Why is this happening? When this is happening, I think that's the, the question that every academic has to ask. was going to hell. It was hell. If she'd had any money, she'd have left the country, somewhere nice and quiet, without vampires and drug dealers. But she didn't. Anna pressed a hand against her forehead and wondered what gang the vampire belonged to. She could bet this was the work of a necros. She'd seen bites like that in Zacatecas and had learned to recognize the telltale signs of several vampire species. That's from a novel called Certain Dark Things by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. It was published in 2016. She grew up in Mexico and now lives in Canada. In the novel, she tells of narco-vampire turf wars spilling into Mexico City. She portrays these vampires as being of different races. She has like these um, original people, vampires from Mexico, that are narcos as well, but they are like, um, she, she says that they were like 
priestess of the Aztecs. The protagonist is one of these vampires. And then there are these colonizers, these um, European vampires that are much more violent and they brought all this war. Most countries had taken measures against vampires since the 70s, measures that grew increasingly hostile. Many vampires, a lot of them from Europe, knowing how these things went simply underwent mass migration toward the countries that would take them. Countries with corrupt officials who would issue admission papers for vampires who should have been turned back at the airport. Alejandro's question. Why is this happening? The answer seems easy to spot. Gothic horror in Mexican fiction mirrors real-life horror. The federal government is warning Canadians in western Mexico to limit their movements and shelter in place as the region sees a deadly wave of violence erupting between the Sinaloa drug cartel and security forces. Gunfire, burning vehicles and damage to essential infrastructure. Coming after Thursday morning's arrest of Ovidio Guzman, the son of cartel boss El Chapo and senior player of the cartel in his own right. In cities like Juarez, a homicide rate of over 200 per 100,000 inhabitants. Something monstrous. Something monstrous. The monstrous figure allows us to think about things that are very horrible <laughs> and try to make them more digestible and focus attention of the reader and say, these are monsters. These things are happening because these monstrous people are doing these things. To what extent do these vampire cartels work as a way to understand? real-world fears about cartel-related violence as well. They're a way for me to sublimate some of my fears. <laughs> that's an easy one. I don't know how they can explain the real uh, violence that's happening, because, I mean, I'm, I'm taking a, a pretty fantastic approach to it. This is novelist Silvia Moreno-Garcia. The problem that is happening, that has been happening for a really long time in the north of Mexico and several parts of Mexico, because of the drug trade, is not an issue that uh, that was created solely by Mexico. It's it's deeply, deeply connected to forces in the United States and in other parts of the world wanting these drugs, providing weapons, providing spaces for this trade to take place. And I think just showing all these, you know, the local vampire, the local Mexican vampires are not not nice, but there's also these other forces at play, these foreign forces, and the cops are also not very good and clean and nice in the in the story uh, kind of shows you perhaps that it's a complicated web to understand. Mexico, corrupt yet stable, free of wars and political upheavals, was a favorite destination, though Brazil and Argentina also enjoyed a steady influx of vampires. By the time Ana was in high school in the 80s, all 10 vampire species were represented in Mexico in varying degrees. Most numerous were the necros. Silvia Moreno-Garcia often draws on traditional Gothic tropes for her fiction set in Mexico. Creepy castles, ghosts, and the uncanny. Well, Gothic novels have traditionally been set in, I shouldn't say have been set in Europe, but the point of view has been a white European Protestant point of view. So in the very early Gothics, you see that the figure of the other, the thing that is going to infringe upon the normal, the thing that is strange, 
are Italians and Spaniards, which are considered at that in that time period in the early 1800s, they're very strange and odd. And to us nowadays, that might seem a little bit like, well, who's afraid of Spaniards or Italians? But in this time period, they are the shifty people that are doing really bad and wicked things in these sort of stories. So you either have maybe an evil Italian coming into the picture, or you have somebody traveling to Italy and encountering lots of evil Italians there. That's kind of the dynamic that is happening with Count Dracula. He's an Eastern European that's going to London and sort of infecting all of these people with vampirism. Later on, as the British Empire expands, because this is a genre that takes its root in Great Britain, as it expands, the fears of who is the other begin to change. So you start seeing things like fears of the Caribbean, of voodoo, or maybe India. Maybe there's a monkey's paw that if you touch, it can give you very bad wishes or a ruby that's that's cursed. But the fears remain the same. It's this white, upper-class, Protestant person who is in danger of being infected, corrupted, or destroyed by these forces of evil who are often persons of color or persons that occupy this space that is not the normal. Sylvia's vampires do more than stand in for violent Mexican drug cartels. The real-world horrors behind the metaphor go back to Mexico's history as a Spanish colony. Sylvia's most famous book is Mexican Gothic, and it's even more explicit about the haunting shadow of colonial rule. She could picture this same graveyard once upon a time, in a tidier state, with carefully tended shrubs and flower beds. But now it was a realm of weeds and tall grasses, the vegetation threatening to swallow the place whole. The tombstones were blanketed with moss, and mushrooms sprouted by the graves. It was a picture of melancholy. It was the sum of it, not the individual parts, that made the English cemetery so sad. Mexican Gothic takes place in and around an old manor house high up in the mountains. Fog constantly swirls around the house. Nearby, the dark tunnels of an old abandoned silver mine. The owners of that mine still inhabit the manor house. A British family, the Doyles. Well, when I wrote Mexican Gothic, what I was trying to reverse was that traditional narrative where you would have perhaps the Mexican being the evil, scary people and the white people being the upstanding good people that are being threatened. And Mexican Gothic completely reverses that relationship because the family here that we have, the Doyles are, it's a colonial mining enterprise that that is in Mexico. And, and the heroine, the point of view that we follow is a young Mexican woman. So it inverses that relationship. You normally would have had Something like Dracula, maybe, in a traditional Gothic story, perhaps a Mexican coming to London, I don't know, and and kind of spreading Ebola around the populace. So this story reverses that story and makes some of the colonial elements that were sort of more implicit in some of that earlier Gothic fiction more explicit. In both novels that we were talking about here, you do draw on the colonial history in Mexico to inspire the monsters or the ghosts, um, vampires in, in the fiction. 
What do you hope this achieves among your readers? You can paint a portrait that is very realistic of something, but doing it in a fantastic way allows you to tackle things differently. So if you have a story like Beloved, where there's a ghost and uh, there's an exploration of trauma and slavery through this figure of a haunting of a ghost, that can be a very interesting experience and very different experience than if you're reading a nonfiction book that is, for example, narrating what the situation in in the United States in the middle of the 19th century might have been for an enslaved person. So it's a way of confronting that historical legacy and almost, I guess you can't use the word personifying it, but maybe <laughs> creating creating a monster out of the fear and the, the terror that came with that kind of colonial history. Yeah, I mean, some sometimes looking back at something that is traumatic is not it's not easy to achieve in a certain way. So when you are looking back at uh, uh, that kind of trauma, simply looking, for example, at a list of dead people does not sufficiently express the horror of the situation. And you sort of have to paint it or draw it in a different way, like a painting from, I don't know, Goya, to allow you to even get close to what that might have felt like. Because otherwise it just becomes sometimes a litany of atrocities, but it just becomes words. And I think in fiction, you are able to explore trauma in ways that are more effective sometimes. And speculative fiction opens the gate to coloring outside of the borders of reality to draw upon some elements that you can't when you're just trying to do a photographic representation of the world. Silvia Moreno-Garcia is a Mexican-Canadian author in Vancouver. Her novels include Certain Dark Things and Mexican Gothic. The term Gothic is inherently confusing. In a way, it refers back to literal Goths and Vandals, the so-called barbarians who tore down ancient Rome and thrust Europe into the Dark Ages. But by the time Gothic novels come along, in the late 1700s, Europe's well into its Age of Enlightenment, and Gothic now means anything unenlightened. Look. There they are. Let us watch from behind this pillar. The Gothic lives in the shadows. Look, my lord! The portrait of Lord Manfred's grandfather moves in its frame on the wall. What is this? Follow me. Why is this happening? It's sort of medieval, but also sort of silly, not quite convincing. So it's fitting that Horace Walpole himself, founder of the Gothic novel, lived in a fake medieval castle. He had the place built for fun and frolics, and then after he moved in, this giant creepy house gave him nightmares. Alejandro puts bakery at the heart of what he calls the Mexican Gothic style. Take the first novel by Yuri Herrera. Yuri Herrera is a very important writer. Uh, he's been translated into English and he's very well respected. Okay. 
Hi, my name is Judy Herrera. I'm a Mexican writer living in New Orleans. One of his most famous books is called, in English, it's called Kingdom Cons, like con, like uh, something fake, con, yeah. like a con. It's about this castle in the middle of Mexico with uh, this narco couple, which is a king, and he has his sister, and he has all this kingdom and all that kind of things. That uh, and there's a witch, of course, and all these ideas that are like reading Castle of Otranto in 2022. It was my first novel. It's uh, it's a novel that I'm really fond of, precisely because of this. I wrote it when I was living in the border between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. Tell us, what is the kingdom where the novel takes place? Well, it's a fake kingdom. This is a novel about a relationship between art and power. He knew blood and could see this man's was different, could see it in the way he filled the space with no urgency and an all-knowing air as though made of finer threads. This is the opening scene. It's from the point of view of a man called the artist. The story has a ton of characters, but really it's all about the two from this opening scene, the artist and the king. It's the story of how someone realizes that this sacred figure is in reality not a sacred figure, but just a regular person that, for some reason, has accumulated a lot of power. It was exactly as he'd always envisioned palaces to be, supported by columns, paintings and statues in every room, animal skins draped over sofas, gold door knockers, a ceiling too high to touch, and more than that, it was people, so many people, striding down corridors, this way and that, attending to affairs or looking to shine. People from far and wide, from every corner of the earth, people from beyond the desert. Word of God, there were even some who had seen the sea, and women who walked like leopards and giant warriors, their faces decorated with scars. This fake kingdom, it's a commercial organization in, the, in that sense, you know, a sort of association of criminals that include institutional and non-institutional criminals with which this artist gets acquainted. So the king is a, a, a criminal kingpin. Yeah. And uh, what inspired you to write about the relationship between an artist and a uh, so-called king? I think in, in every society there is a tension in between the people that are creating art and the people that think that their obligation is to, to limit the, the power of artists and in general the freedom of expression of, of the citizens. And I was thinking that one of my models was the way in which European painters especially were creating art in spite of creating it for this lazy, useless uh, aristocrats. And I was fascinated on how these people were able to create our own, our own boys, to create beautiful pieces of art, even though they weren't fully free in that sense, because their sponsors were these powerful people, and they had to include them in their pieces, and they had to follow their desires. So my, my sleeping quarters, they were in El Paso, but I spent a lot of time in Juarez, and I was thinking, well, I don't want to write a novel about 
with these lazy European aristocrats, I was in a place in which I had, as a model, an example of those societies. One of the powers that I had there was the power of the organized crime. The artist moves into the king's palace. His job is to compose corridos, a traditional form of storytelling song rooted in real-life events. He soon makes friends with another employee, the journalist. And I'm going to quote directly from your book. This journalist's job is to keep the fools entertained with clean lies. And in order to keep the fools entertained with clean lies, the journalist has to make them seem true. But the real news was the artist's job, the stuff of corridos. So what is the relationship between the artist's corridos and the truth? Well, he is uh, someone who has been raised on the streets, and the, the, the truth on the street is something that you have to touch, that you have to hear, that you have to smell, and that you have to create your own story regarding it. It's not something that you just receive pre-digested in a piece of paper. So um, the truth of this kind of person is a truth that also has to be said in a way that it can be remembered. That's why it's a song. And these kind of songs for this kind of character is like the, the ideal way of, of transmitting information, among, among other things, because it's always transmitted by a, a real person in front of you. In the novel, Lobo, or the artist, has this relation with the journalist, because the journalist is named like that because of the big boss that gave him the journalist. But he is aware that he knows that he's not a real journalist in the sense that he's working for the power. But he knows what real journalism is, and he knows the power of words, the power of language. That's why he admires the artist, because he realizes that art is telling the truth by other means, or telling the truth by other rules. And in this context in which journalism is subjected by, by the powers that be, it is art that, in an elliptical way, is going to tell the truth. Is the king supposed to represent some kind of monstrous force to be feared? Or what does he represent? Well, yeah. But this monstrous force to be feared is not something that is exclusive to Mexico or exclusive to the to the narco world. But more than that is the kind of craziness and the kind of inhumanity that shows up with really powerful people. You know, the way power makes you forget your humanity, the way uh, power makes you think that you have rights over other people's lives. But at the first moment, you don't see that. We have been raised thinking that kings and queens are kings and queens because they deserve it or because they are special people, not because they have amassed all this power through violence, either themselves or their ancestors. If we see the real history of kings and queens and of, of courts, of aristocracies, it's mainly about historical violence and how, and how they create certain narratives to clean themselves from the originary violence of their position. Yuri Herrera, thank you so much for your time. 
No, on the contrary, thanks to you. <laughs> Muchas gracias. Gracias a ustedes. Yuri Herrera is the author of Kingdom Cons, among many other works. He lives and teaches in New Orleans. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. PhD graduate Alejandra Seufer sees a pattern in Mexican literature, starting in the 1990s and growing today. He calls it Mexican Gothic, and he makes the case that a hidden truth lurks in this fantastical trend. But to see it clearly, we must grapple with a typically Gothic obsession, deciding what to believe and who the monster really is. Alejandro's work is the subject of this episode of Ideas from the Trenches, our series spotlighting PhD students in Canada. It's presented by Tom Howell and Nikola Lukšić. I mean, of course, Celia works with vampires, which is uh, the figure of the monster, and it uh, may be easier for the general public to understand it as part of the horror genre. But uh, Shuri also works with castles, which is a, a very important topic in the Gothic. We brought Alejandro Seufer back to talk with us after listening to authors Silvia Moreno-Garcia and Yuri Herrera. They use their art to try to represent these horrible things that are happening. And at the same time, they are using the tropes of the Gothic genre. Now, when you originally wrote to us, you made this claim that the cultural production of Gothic horror, I'm quoting your words, the cultural production of Gothic horror fiction both reflects the country's current violent state, that's Mexico's current violent state, and shapes how the public interprets and understands it. Explain. <laughs> well, I think that what Shuri said, it's uh, kind of um, reaffirms what I, I told you. Fiction and art molds the way that we interact with reality, right? All fictions give us uh, a way of thinking. They portray a way of thinking. I, I don't remember if it was uh, Sylvia or him that said the, fake, the, the word fake. And I think that that's the, the, the most important thing here, the fakery, right? It's obvious that the novel by Celia it's a, a, a clear fiction because it talks about vampires that everyone knows that don't exist. But Shuri's instead, uh, he's like with this more embellished uh, prose, these more sophisticated uh, narratives, and the way he works with the literary realism, maybe, maybe he's giving the impression that uh, it's not fiction, but it's a kind of a form of reality, right? And it's clearly not. <laughs> that's what. That's my point. 
Alejandro worries that a cliché has taken root in our collective imagination. The idea of there being a handful of mastermind kingpins living ruthless yet glamorous lives calling the shots while strategically controlling a multi-billion dollar international drug trafficking industry. When the government in Mexico City figured out that a bunch of Sinaloan farmers were getting rich shipping their dope up north, they decided to do something about it. It's a narrative that drives the massively successful Netflix series, Narcos Mexico. It's a rags-to-riches tale following the life and dramatic times of El Chapo, also known as Joaquin Guzman. The people who make Narcos never hid the fact that as far as truth and fantasy goes, Their storylines are a mix, about 50-50. Yes, El Chapo grew up poor. Yes, he dropped out of school by grade three. And he did indeed become a powerful and feared figure in the drug trafficking business. Okay, nobody is saying that there's not violence and that these people are not making money. That's, that's correct, that's clear. But maybe we are exaggerating, we are making them more than they are, or maybe we are building them as monsters. Alejandro thinks that pop culture makes drug lords like El Chapo, quote, more than they really are. He came to believe this after reading a provocative academic book, a blend of literary critique with media analysis and political theory. Its author is Oswaldo Zavala. I came across his work because my supervisor, Susan Antevi, told me about him, uh, his first book, which is called uh, Cartels Do Not Exist. And I found it fascinating. Cartels do not exist? Exactly. Um, okay. Well, problem solved then. <laughs> yes. That's what I thought. <laughs> I was like, okay, so if they don't exist, I don't have a PhD to do. <laughs> no, but it's very provocative. And I thought, well, why? Why is he making this assertion? Hello, I'm Osvaldo Zavala. I'm professor of Latin American literature and culture at the City University of New York. We reach Oswaldo at his apartment in the busy, noisy heart of Manhattan. Like Yuri and Sylvia, he now lives outside Mexico. I grew up at the U.S.-Mexico border in, in the city of Juarez, which is right across uh, from El Paso, Texas, right next to the Rio Grande, as they call it in the U.S., or Rio Bravo on the Mexican side. How would you sort of describe life in uh, Juarez for an ordinary law-abiding citizen these days? Well, I mean, it's, it's changed dramatically in the past uh, 15 years or so um, because of the anti-drug militarization that began in 2006 um, with the presidency of Felipe Calderón. Prior to that, which is the Juarez that I'm most familiar with and the one I grew up in, Juarez was a very benevolent, welcoming city for migrants, for people trying to make a better future uh, for themselves uh, from all parts of Mexico and and elsewhere in Latin America. And unfortunately, uh, beginning with the militarization, violence spiked, the homicide rate went astronomical. And I think now people, even though the city is still uh, experiencing disproportionate violence, people are, are attempting to move on and to live their lives. And 
now, of course, uh, it's not just the militarization, it's, of, it's also the undocumented migrant waves from different parts of the continent that are affecting livelihood in, uh, in Ciudad Juarez and, and, and the way society is trying to deal with the tremendous uh, human tragedy of, of migration and that is affecting everywhere, but uh, more concentratedly in, in, at the U.S.-Mexico border. Of course, the book we're, we're going to be speaking with you about, it has a very provocative title, Cartels Do Not Exist. That's what it translates to. So what do you mean when, when you say cartels don't exist? Since the 1980s, U.S. institutions uh, trying to enforce anti-drug prohibition and, and legislation have been using this word cartel to describe uh, the organizations that produce and circulate and ultimately bring across the border uh, drugs, illegal drugs into the United States. And what I argue in, in my book is that the concept of cartel originated by agencies like the DEA does not not only correctly describe the phenomenon, but actually imposes a political motivated idea about drug organizations. The idea being that drug cartels are pyramidal, powerful structures with uh, extraordinary capabilities, military and financial, that can not only challenge state structures in, in, in Mexico or Colombia or even the US, the US and Europe, but can actually surpass state structures, agencies, police agencies, etc. And, um, and in doing so, they exert extraordinary levels of violence into civil society. And so what I argue instead is that the idea of a cartel is a concept that was designed to legitimize uh, a very violent, radical view of anti-drug legislation that involved using the military and that has gradually militarized entire regions of Mexico and, and other uh, parts of Latin America with a terrible, disastrous result. Not only homicidal violence, but just general decay in living standards for, for Mexican citizens. The idea of cartel does not give us any clarity uh, as to what is the, the phenomenon of drug trafficking, but rather it imposes this idea that they, they become a tremendous negative force in society that must be fought militarily. And it drives then uh, public consensus to accept uh, the militarization and to, and to legitimize all these uh, horrible, horrible crimes against society and humanity that are happening in the country. The largest, most violent, and most prolific fentanyl trafficking operation in the entire world. officials now say the four sons only amplified El Chapo's brutality. The homicide rate in Mexico has tripled since 2006, when the Mexican government officially set out to eradicate drug-related activity. 20 asesinatos y ni un solo detenido. La masacre del 24 de junio se produjo en San Juan Capistrano. Their rate is now 15 times higher than the general homicide rate in Canada. The government estimates about half the murders are directly linked to drug cartel activity. A prominent U.S. think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations, reports more than 79,000 Mexicans have disappeared since 2006. This report primarily blames criminal organizations, with government forces also playing a role. So you're not denying that the violence increased exponentially in the last 20 years. 
you're denying the framing of this violence? Correct. I am not only not, of course, uh, putting into question that there's been a, a horrible rise in, in violence all over Mexico, but what I'm trying to do is to offer a different understanding of how, how is it that we came to, uh, to experience this. Up until 2007 in Mexico, we saw a, a clear uh, sustained descent uh, in the homicide rate all over the country that actually lasted for that entire decade. So from 1997 until 2007, Mexico was actually experiencing a, a, a decisive sustained descent in homicides, uh, which by around 2007 were close to eight uh, homicides per 100,000 inhabitants, which is a pretty uh, standard rate comparable to many uh, of those of, uh, of many US uh, cities. With the demilitarization, that, uh, that pattern changed, um, and instead of declining, it, it dramatically augmented, right? And so um, by 2010, uh, we had, uh, in cities like Juarez, a homicide rate of over 200 uh, per 100,000 inhabitants, something monstrous. If you wouldn't use the word cartel to describe organized crime that's hmm. happening there, what, what, how would you describe it? Back in the day, there were different uh, ways to, um, to, to refer to them. Uh, traffickers, I believe in the 1980s, referred to the organization as the Federation, some form of conglomerate of different groups that, um, that maybe somehow work a little bit in, in coordination. Uh, but um, what is very interesting about those years, and this is what uh, some journalists have claimed, and, and even the traffickers themselves, is that this federation was not organized by the traffickers necessarily, but rather by the political and police system that sheltered them and that allowed them to uh, conduct business. Um, now, it is very difficult to get rid of the word cartel because the, the, the word has taken uh, a life in its own and its own inertia, right? And, and so people use it uh, in a very vague, flexible way to describe all kinds of organizations. It can be a large, big organization like supposedly the Sinaloa cartel that, like I, like I said, it's supposed to have a presence in, in over 100 countries, but also to refer to micro-little organizations uh, that populate uh, random places of Mexico, some uh, special um, research groups on organized crime in, in the U.S. and in Mexico have claimed that there exist over 500 groups, others claim uh, 30 groups, um, so it's very difficult to, to define what these organizations are supposed to do or to be or to mean. And, and so my, uh, my research in, in part has been aimed at, at showing how when, every time we talk about cartel, we really talk about everything and nothing. We talk about um, the fantasies that uh, DEA agents want to peddle in, in Mexico for different reasons. Um, the first one, of course, to appear to be effectively fighting a very difficult and very dangerous uh, enemy, um, but also uh, it's being used politically to exert pressure at the you know at the diplomatic level between the U.S. and Mexico, and to advance uh, geopolitical interest of transnational companies, the military uh, agenda of both the U.S. Mexico, and of course the lucrative business of war. Right. So, for 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 us, in order to accept that there's such a thing as the war on drugs there better be an enemy worth it, right? <laughs> and so every time we use the word cartel in such um, irrestrictive, uncontrollable way, we uh, maybe um, 
without realizing or participating or collaborating in this um, uh, political agenda that uh, promotes the militarization of countries like Mexico and Colombia. Oswaldo's book started out, like Alejandro's PhD, as a work of literary criticism. When I started looking at the different types of novels that were out there in short stories, one thing that I quickly understood is that they were all reproducing the same narrative that then appear in the mass media, of course, and in official institutions talking about the director. So I was very surprised to see the deep mediation of official discourse in novels such as, for example, Balas de Plata, Silver Bullets by uh, Sinaloa and Elmer Mendoza, or um, Trabajos del Reino, which I believe was uh, translated as Kingdom Comes by, by Judy Herrera, and, and many others that regardless of, of the objective of the novel or, or the style of the novel, um, they were all in many ways um, presenting to us or imagining for us uh, the drug trade in the same coordinates that official discourse does. That is, you know, the, the cartel, the, the very powerful structure that somehow is in the margins of Mexican society and yet is penetrating Mexican society and is controlling um, uh, police and media and, and the political class. And that become that has be grown up to become so powerful that it's almost an, an, a, a second state in its own or a state within the state. And this fantasy, this imagination of the powerful Trump cartel then I realized was not really coming from the creative minds of the fiction writers. The point of origin of this story was neither uh, in the novel or in, uh, in the news report of a journalist, but rather in those institutions that first came up with the idea of the drug war, that invented the idea of the cartel, and that magnified the presence of organized crime in the country so much that we accept the prescription uh, of, the, of the state, right? The militarization, more police, more violence, um, and of course, uh, but the tremendous bloodshed and decay that, that, that drug, the, the so-called drug war brought to places like Mexico. Okay, so step one, let's, let's put a cap on this kind of fiction. Would that help? Sure. Really? <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense that um, if by cap you mean um, a critical check on it, right? Uh, I, of course, I don't advocate censorship or anything. I don't believe um, that uh, any sort of uh, enforcement on the way we talk is productive for anyone. But at least as consumers, we should embrace a critical understanding of cultural products, right? If you will. Um, so I believe people should feel free to watch an, a Netflix series, but um, but to do it in a critical way, right? To do it understanding that what they're seeing is not uh, part of, um, uh, uh, you know, a proven empirical reality, reality, but rather uh, discourse ideological mediation, right? That there's a history to these ideas and that these ideas and this form of imagining uh, the drug trade in Mexico brings us back to those people who are most interested in, in promoting the violence of the drug war. Oswaldo Zavala, muchas gracias. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Waldo Zavala teaches at City University of New York. His books include Drug Cartels Do Not Exist, Narco-Trafficking in U.S. and Mexican Culture.
there is sort of an ideological discourse around the violence that's going on. This idea that the violence is this grassroots expression that's coming from a reality on the ground, and therefore the texts and the films just reflect that. Whereas we might actually say that you know, those, those texts are shaping the violence in turn, so it, it goes the other way. We met up with Alejandro's PhD supervisor, Susan Antaby. Not that the authors are literally agents of some evil power, not quite, but more that they're part of the larger ideological landscape. Susan's own work combines a study of literature with writing about disability and the human body and the history of eugenics in Mexico. Her interests meet Alejandro's over how a culture processes its deepest fears. Often monstrosity works as kind of a marker of limits and boundaries. There's this interesting connection between this idea of the, the fear of the other and the way that that structure of fear and also the idea of what is real and what might not be quite real allows us to understand something about the limits of what's considered human and what a nation or a population or people desire for their future. Susan says monster stories often serve the cause of real-life violence, essentially laying the imaginative groundwork. In this classic example, because I suppose it's typically thought of as earliest instance of contact, is Christopher Columbus writing in his journals, right? And he talks about sort of dog-headed men that might have been living on another island, but we didn't get to visit that island. We heard about them. And he also refers to men who eat or ate other men. So this idea that monstrosity is to be feared and it's there, but it's somehow a little bit always out of reach and elsewhere. We don't necessarily come face to face with it. This is a common trope that comes up. We also see it in early maps, right? Even prior to Columbus's exploration of, of the Americas, right? we see it in maps where monsters are depicted as you know, emerging from the ocean at a particular site. And what would you say is new or significant about the way Alejandro is approaching this uh, horror genre in, in Mexican literature? What I've really enjoyed about Alejandro's work is the fact that he didn't choose to just say, here are these novels and, and films that represent drug culture and violence in Mexico. He took a much more broad and historically specific view, I think, looking at this idea of horror and the gothic as something that it doesn't depend on a content of drug trafficking. The gothic has more to do with the play of light and shadow, the way fear and desire come into the text, the way certain places are marked as ghostly or ghastly, and also the notion of what he calls the gothic counterfeit, that kind of uncertainty about what is real or fake. All of these things, I think, play into a way of reading these texts as not just a reflection of drug culture and violence that's happening now, but a larger structure shaping a national perception about where the violence is coming from. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Susan Antaby is a professor of Latin American literature at the University of Toronto. And Alejandro Soifer is back with us in studio. Hello, Alejandro. Hi, how are you? Good. So we took 
quite a journey in this episode, from narco-trafficking vampires to the legacy of colonialism in Mexico through to the depiction of real-life narcos and the idea of the monster. What key ideas do you hope people listening to this will hold on to from what they've heard? I think that what my work intends is to try to share a new light to these narratives. I'm mostly interested in the, the idea of the fakery, this fiction, these times we are living in when you don't really know what's true, what's not true, what's fake, what's real. The critics' work is to try to understand the text and try to see how they were built and try to bring it to the public and try to say, okay, so you can enjoy this. You do whatever you do you want with this text, but just understand that these are just works of fictions. So, so who is the real monster? <laughs> Human being. <laughs> no, I, I, the idea of the monster within us is uh, one of the classical tropes from Gothic fiction, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Stevenson. The monster is part of the, the human essence. But the particular figure of the monster that I am thinking of is a, a figure of the monster that stands between progress and the march towards the future from history and tries to stop that progress. You mentioned colonial times, you mentioned uh, historical times, and I think that monsters are parts of of that past that uh, try to stop the, the, the train of progress, if you want. Alejandro, thank you so much. This has been really great to be on this journey with you. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much for having me. You are listening to Mexico's Gothic Turn, featuring the work of University of Toronto PhD graduate Alejandro Seufer. It's part of our ongoing series, Ideas from the Trenches, where we feature outstanding PhD research from across the country. If you're working on a PhD and would like to be considered for the series, email us through our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. The excerpts from Silvia Moreno-Garcia's novels, Certain Dark Things, and Mexican Gothic were read by Syria Gastelum Felix and Manolo Lugo Mejares. Rafael Lozano Hemmer read the excerpts from Kingdom Cons by Yuri Herrera. Thank you to all of our guests. Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Yuri Herrera. Osvaldo Zavala. Susan Antipi. My name is Alejandro Soifar. I am from Argentina, Buenos Aires, and I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto. For more on our guests and their work, you can head to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. This series is produced by Tom Howell and Nikola Lukšić. Technical producer for Ideas is Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.